Tonight's first reading is from Romans chapter 7, verses 1 to 6. You can find the text on page 1136. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? Thus, a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit." In your service sheet, you've got three different cards. I'd like you to take the, um, the one about the service next week and stick it in that Romans passage. So the one that says, is faith a psychological crutch? Stick that in Romans. And then I'd like you please to turn to Galatians chapter 2, which is page 1170, and stick maybe a response card in that. And then the third thing you've got to do is find Exodus chapter 20, verse 22, and put whatever's remaining in that. It will make your life a lot easier in the next few minutes if you've done that. So, a second reading is Galatians, chapter 2, verse 15, page 1170. Paul writes, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not, for if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ... It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? You so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you, now be- are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. 
So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Well, I wear uh, my glasses all the time. So um, everything I see, I see through these lenses. And that's for good and for bad. So these glasses make things in the distance which would be blurry. It brings them into sharp focus. Uh, But now that I'm getting older, I find that things that are actually close up, I'm trying to read, it makes more blurry. So anyway, um, problem there to be solved at some point. What you think about Old Testament law, Ten Commandments, for example, what you think about Old Testament law is like a pair of glasses. So it will affect how you view everything. And it will have a huge impact on how you relate to God, and for that matter, how God relates to you. So it's very important that we think clearly and we think biblically about the law. And this point in our Exodus series is a good time to do that. So we looked at the Ten Commandments last week in chapter 20 of Exodus. This week we come to the detailed case law, which is in Exodus 20, verse 22, all the way through to 23, 19. And so if you did what I said and you had uh, put whatever it was in Exodus 20, page 74... Um, Even if you just glance at the editor's headings on page 74, it'll give you some idea of the sort of issues and so on that these rules and regulations cover. So page 74, you've got laws about altars. Uh, Then at the top of that column, laws about slaves. Uh, Then next page, laws about restitution. Over the page, page 76, laws about social justice and laws about the Sabbath and festivals. When I saw how the, um, the preaching program had worked out and I uh, saw that Matt had got the Ten Commandments and I got given the specific case law following the Ten Commandments, to be honest, it felt like I'd drawn the short straw. I thought, you know, I've been really stitched up badly here. But you know what's been great? Because it's forced me to sort of go back to the drawing board on this big issue of the law and the Christian in a way I probably wouldn't have done otherwise. And I've personally found it an eye-opener and I hope that you will as well. So as Rob was saying um, at the beginning, rather than zooming in just on this case law in Exodus 21 to 23, uh, 20 to 23, we're going to pull back a bit and we're going to think about how we are now to relate to Old Testament law in general. Because if that sort of bigger framework is not in place correctly, then we haven't got a lot of hope, have we, in handling specific passages like this correctly. And we're going to set up base camp, if you like, in Galatians, which is why you needed to have the other bit of whatever in there. So Galatians was written to a church as a rebuke. It was a rebuke to a church that had a wrong view of the law. And it was serious. So it's a bit like having uh, the wrong prescription in your glasses. Uh, They distort everything, your view of everything. Getting the law wrong had robbed this church of their joy in the Christian life. So in Galatians 4.15, 
Uh, Paul writes, what has happened to all your joy? Uh, That's the NRV translation. The ESV here says, um, what has become of the blessing you felt? What has happened to all your joy? You know, if you went to the, the spiritual doctors and you said to the spiritual doctor, look, I'm I'm lacking joy as a Christian. Have you ever thought that he he or she might diagnose a wrong view of the law? But the consequences of their wrong view of the law didn't stop there. Uh, So if you look at chapter 5, verse 4 of Galatians, it talks about being severed from Christ and having fallen away from grace. So a wrong view of the law can actually lead us away from Christ or it can keep us from God in the first place. So some who think that they know God, they don't actually know him because they're not relating to God in a right way and it's all to do with the law. So this isn't a trivial issue. It's, uh, it's a big one. It's got massive implications for us. Um, the question is, what is the place of the law for us today? And there are two points on your sheet, so inside the service sheet there. And the first one is that the law is not how we get right with God. The law is not how we get right with God. This term law uh, in the Bible, it almost always refers to these regulations given to Moses at Mount Sinai. So if you've been with us through the series, you'll know that God rescued the Israelites from Egypt. He brought them to Mount Sinai, and through Moses, he gave them this law, the law. And this law is recorded in Exodus 20 onwards, and also in Leviticus, and in Numbers, and in Deuteronomy. How did the law work? How did the law work? There's a website called How Stuff Works. You can go on and you can find out how all sorts of things work. Um, They had something on lemon laws, which I had no clue what they were. Uh, But they didn't have anything about Old Testament law. How does Old Testament law work? Well, very simply, it worked like this, that God laid down rules and regulations. If you obeyed them, you were blessed by God. If you disobeyed them, you were cursed by God. So blessing was conditional on obedience. And so last week in chapter 19 of Exodus, verse 6, God promised the Israelites that they would be his treasured possession and they would be a holy nation. But there was this condition. If if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession. It's conditional. So being right with God depended on their obedience to the law. And the people themselves say, and I put the references and the footnotes there, so Deuteronomy 6 verse 5, the people say, it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment. So that was how the law worked. Uh, God had chosen them, he'd rescued them from Egypt for a relationship with him, but the relationship depended on obedience to the law. But what happened? Spoiler warning, if you don't know how the film ends, um, they disobeyed and they were cursed. Okay, that's how the film pans out. So first generation disobeyed, they perished in the wilderness under God's anger, under God's judgment. Subsequent generations like them, they disobeyed, they were judged. In the end, the nation was destroyed and a handful of survivors were exiled from the land. Why did all of this happen? Well, Jeremiah 9.13, God says, because... They have forsaken my law that I set before them, and they have not obeyed my voice. Now, here's the interesting thing. God knew this was going to happen. 
Right from the outset, God knew this was going to happen. So Deuteronomy 31, 16, right at the beginning of all this, God says to Moses, This people will forsake me and break my covenant that I've made with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them, and I will forsake them and hide my face from them, and they will be devoured. God knew it was inevitable. Why did he know that? Well, because they had sinful, stubborn, rebellious, hard hearts. And so although this people had been rescued and they'd been given every privilege you could possibly imagine, faced with God's law, they would not obey it. And in fact, the law just made things worse. So Romans 5.20 says that the law came in to increase the trespass and sin increased. That is to say that the law exposed their sin and the law actually provoked their sin. No wonder, um, in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 7, no wonder it refers to the Old Testament law as the ministry of death carved in letters on stone. The ministry of death. Now, what was God up to? Um, If God knew that this wasn't going to work, why did he bother? Uh, Why go to such trouble with this centuries-long, costly project with a whole nation that was doomed to failure from the start? It seems rather pointless. Just imagine at work, and maybe you don't have to imagine this, but imagine at work investing years of time and effort and shed loads of resources on a project that you know from the outset is going to fail. What's the point? Well, the point was this. To show once and for all, to everyone for all time, that law is not the answer. That was the point, that law doesn't work. God is holy, people are sinful, the law cannot bring the two together. And the history of Israel put that on global display. So it wasn't that they were especially bad, because they weren't. They were just like everyone else. They were sinful people with hard hearts. No doubt um, in school days in physics you did that experiment where you uh, shine a beam of white light into a prism and it then reveals on the other side what that white beam of light is made up of and it refracts into all the different colours. Well, the Old Testament law in Israel was this huge experiment, if you like, by God to show what is inside, not just what was inside them, but what is inside all of us by nature. Rebellious, sinful hearts. And so to show that the law is not the answer and cannot be the answer. Law cannot get us right with God. But why go to such trouble to demonstrate that the law is not the answer? Well, because we think it is. We think it is. In fact, it is the default setting of the proud human heart that we think that we can get right with God through law, through our obedience. I'm good. Give me the rules and regulations. I'll obey them. I can do this. You see it in, uh, for example, in Judaism today. Uh, If you go up to the Orthodox Jewish community in North London, they've got their 613 do's and don'ts from the law that they're seeking to obey to be right with God. It's law-based religion. Uh, You see it in Islam, of course. If I obey, I'll be accepted, I hope. And so, you know, if I pray five times a day, if, as many are doing now, if I go without food and water, 
for a month between sunrise and sunset during Ramadan. It's law-based religion. You see it in some traditional Anglican church-going, church-going religion. Um, in quite a few Anglican churches, you will find the Ten Commandments on display. It's interesting just to reflect on this, but you, at, the cent- at the front of the church, engraved in stone, you'll have the Ten Commandments on display. And the message can be, and often this is the message in some of these churches, God accepts those who keep those commandments. It's law-based religion. And it is what so many people who are not Christian assume Christianity is saying. What more could God have done to show us that law-based religion does not work? It cannot work. It can't get us right with God. All it does is it brings curse and it brings judgment. So if law doesn't work, what does work? Well, Jesus. He's the solution. Uh, Galatians 3, if you've got one bit of paper in there, page 1171. Uh, Galatians 3, verse 23 says, Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. Imprisoned until faith came. So, imagine it this way. Imagine sitting in a dirty, damp prison cell, condemned to death. And the jailer, who is the law, okay, so the jailer, who is the law in this illustration, he gives you a toothbrush. And he says, if you can get your cell clean, you can go free. And so you scrub and you scrub and you scrub day and night. But it's completely hopeless because all you do with your scrubbing of your toothbrushes, you're just moving dirt around the cell. It's not solving the problem at all. It doesn't make anything clean. But then one day the cell door opens and the jailer says to you, you're free to go now. And in walks another man, Jesus, who takes your place. And Jesus says, I'll deal with this now. I can make this clean. And you notice that as he says that, as he walks, and as he walks in, he winks at the jailer, because they're working together. It was because Jesus was uh, perfectly kept the law that he could set free those imprisoned by the law. So Galatians 4, 5, page 1171, says, God sent forth his Son, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. So he laid down his perfect life taking on himself the curse that we deserve. So Galatians 3.10, All who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it's written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. In doing this, Jesus fulfilled the law. Um, That is, he achieved what the law pointed towards. I think that's what Jesus means when in Matthew 5.17 he says, speaking about the law and the prophets, he says that I haven't come to abolish them, I've come to fulfill them. He's saying that they find their intended purpose in him. And so how do we get right with God? Well, through faith in Jesus, not through law-keeping. Now, that was what the Apostle Paul came to realize, didn't he? He was... uh, He was brought up in law-based religion. And he came to see that that was a dead end. Philippians 3.9, he came to see not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, 
but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Years later, Martin Luther was to have that same realisation. So having for years and years tried uh, to get right with God through law as a monk, he ended up hating God. He was angry with God. Um, In his own words, he says that he was crushed by every kind of calamity by the law of the Decalogue. Decalogue means the Ten Commandments. He was crushed by it. He says, I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. And then finally the penny dropped. And he realized that getting right with God was a gift through Jesus he just had to receive. And if you like, the prison door flew open and the air and light flooded in and he walked away a free man. So many people assume that Christianity is a religion of law. They assume it's just about rules and regulations to obey in the hope that God will accept you. This is saying that's a prison. It's not what it's about at all. It's about being set free by Jesus. If we're those who have experienced that freedom through Jesus, let's pray for those who are imprisoned in law-based religion. And this time of Ramadan is a great time to pray for the Muslim world. Um, It's a time when Muslims are spiritually seeking. And it's a time when growing numbers of Muslims are actually seeing that law-based religion, it does not work. And they're coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Um, There's a book you can read called A Wind in the House of Islam, which describes this unprecedented turning to Christ that is happening across the Muslim world. But we also need to beware drifting back into law-based religion ourselves as a mindset. And I put on your sheets there a quote by, um, from Tim Keller who uh, describes how this can work. So he says that the effects of works religion, he says, persist so stubbornly in the heart that Christians who do believe the gospel at one level will continually revert to religion, operating at deeper levels as if they are saved by their works. And he then quotes in the second paragraph some other guy who says this. Only a fraction of the present body of professing Christians are solidly appropriating the justifying work of Christ in their lives. Many have a theoretical commitment to this doctrine, but in their day-to-day existence, they rely on their sanctification for their justification. That is, drawing their assurance of acceptance with God from their sincerity, their recent religious performance, or the relative infrequency of their conscious willful disobedience. Few know enough to start each day with a thoroughgoing stand on Luther's platform. You are accepted, looking outward in faith and claiming the holy alien righteousness of Christ as the only ground for acceptance. If you're a follower of Jesus, I don't know if you can relate to that. I certainly can myself. Um, What might be some signs that we've drifted into this uh, or drifted back into this works-based mindset? Well, he goes on to write this, and I didn't put this on your sheet, but he says, um, Christians who are no longer sure that God loves and accepts them in Jesus, apart from their spiritual achievements, are subconsciously radically insecure people. Their insecurity shows itself in Pride, a fierce defensive assertion of their own righteousness and defensive criticism of other people. I think another symptom that Paul would point to in the letter of Galatians is a lack of joy. 
What has happened, he says, to all your joy? See, that is what law-based religion does. It sucks the life and joy out of us, a bit like um, one of those Death Eaters in the Harry Potter films, if you've seen that. So, point one is the law is not how we get right with God. Um, But if we are right with God through Jesus, what place should the law then have in our lives? So, as rescued people through Jesus, isn't the law how we are to live? It's common to think so, but I think it's misguided, and this is um, our second point, that the law is not how we live life for God. The law dominated how Old Testament Israel were to live and how they were to relate to God. Um, So it had these detailed rules, regulations, covered every area of life. So the case law that we glanced at in Exodus 21 to 23, it covered everything, uh, from sacrifices to sex, from property to work to finance from slavery to compensation claims. And so life was governed and shaped by trying to keep all these rules and regulations. And you knew that blessing depended on obedience and disobedience would be punished. Now, sometimes as Christians, we operate on the assumption that little has changed. And it's basically the same arrangement. We think, well, you know, the Israelites were rescued and they were given the law to govern life. And so as Christians, we're rescued through Jesus and we're given the law to govern our lives. Um, People then debate about uh, how we're to obey these rules now, these Old Testament law rules, given uh, we're no longer an ancient civilization and Christians are no longer a nation state as Israel were. And now that Jesus has come, you think, well, how does all this apply now? How do we work it out? And so what some Christians do is they they separate out Old Testament law into three strands. And they say, well, you've got the ceremonial law, and you've got the moral law, and you've got the civil law. And they say, well, the ceremonial law, that's clearly done away with now because Jesus came and fulfilled it. He's the Passover lamb, so we don't go around killing lambs anymore. Um, Moral law, they say, well, that's unchanged. That just comes through unchanged. Civil law, that then becomes debatable. Um, as to exactly how we deal with it. And you're then left trying to work out which category some of these rules and regulations fit into. For example, the Sabbath. And you think, well, what do we do with the Sabbath? Is there in the Ten Commandments? Is that civil law? Or is it moral law? Or, you know, what do we do? And particularly when you think the Sabbath wasn't just a day a week, but it was a a year every seven years. And think, well, do we follow that as well? And you get in all sorts of pickles. I think there are at least a couple of problems with this approach. And the first one is that the Bible always always refers to the law as a unified, undivided whole. So the Bible doesn't actually separate out three little neat strands for us of ceremonial, moral, and civil. So it's just treated as a whole. It's the law. And secondly, and more significantly, I think the Bible is saying that the time is over for law now, that the time of the law is gone. So that way of relating to God is history. It's finished. So if you're in Galatians 3 still, page 1171, Galatians 3.19 says, Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Or 3.26, We were held captive under the law, imprisoned, until the coming faith would be revealed. Or 324, the law was our guardian until Christ came. But, verse 25, 
But now that Christ has come, we are no longer under a guardian. It's pretty clear, isn't it, that the law was a temporary provision. Um, it was a temporary arrangement until Christ came. Now that he has come, uh, it's done away with. And it's not just finished as a way to get right with God. It's also finished as a way of life for God's people. If you um, have got one of your bits of paper in Romans 7, in fact Romans 6, if you just flick, back, flick over to that, so our first reading... You'll see the same thing on page 1136. So Romans 6.14, the end of that verse says, speaking to Christians, you are not under law, but under grace. You're not under law, but under grace. And then chapter 7, verse 4, it talks about us as Christians having died to the law through the body of Christ. And then 7.6 says that we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. Release from the law. What this means is that as New Testament believers, law is not the way we live for God. We're not like Israel at Sinai. So the law is not what is to govern our lives now. So we're not to sort of pluck out the Ten Commandments and stick them on our fridge and then make that how we try to live life each day and how we try to grow in godliness. That way of living, it does not work. So just as the law doesn't work to get us right with God, so it doesn't work as a way of living for God. It's what um, Tim Keller calls moralistic behavior change, which is a good phrase, moralistic behavior change. So he says this, he says, moralistic behavior change bends a person into a different shape through fear of consequences rather than melting a person into a new shape. But this doesn't work. Putting pressure on their wills, it may temporarily alter their behavior, but their heart's basic self-centeredness and insecurity remain. And he gives this illustration. He says, if you, try to, if you take a piece of metal and you try to bend a piece of metal without the softening effect of heat, he says it's likely to snap back into its former shape, its former position. Or, he says it may simply break. And he says, many people, after years of being crushed under moralistic behaviorism, they abandon their faith altogether, complaining that they're exhausted and they can't keep it up. You ever seen the film uh, Chocolat? One of my all-time favorite films. I was watching it with the family again the other night. Fantastic illustration of this. If you watch the film, um, you've got this French village which is dominated by law-based religion, um, in that case, in the form of the local Roman Catholic Church. And the mayor of this town is a strict, moralizing tyrant who governs this town with a rod of iron. And what he does is, using rules and regulations, he tries to reform a guy to change a man called Serge. Who's, this guy's a drunkard, he's a wife-beater, he's a nasty man. Uh, but the mayor reckons he can change him through rules and regulations. So he gets him shaved, he gets him cleaned up. He buys him a nice suit. He teaches him good manners. He makes him go and confess to the priest. He puts him in a church class. And after a time, this man, Serge, goes back to his wife to speak with her. Um, By this stage, she's left him. And he says to her, Josephine, I'm a changed man. But she's not interested. This guy's been beating her up before. 
And she's not interested. She tells him to go away. And suddenly, he snaps back into his former shape. And he comes back that night drunk and in a rage to beat her up again. It's moralistic behavior change. It just doesn't work. And you actually see it in the mayor of the town as well. Uh, So his own life, the life of the mayor, is just a life of self-discipline and willpower and rule-keeping. So it's Lent, and he's fasting. And he feels like he's doing so much for God, and yet he gets nothing in return. And his anger against God just builds up and builds up inside him. And then one day, he suddenly breaks. And he's found asleep the next morning in the window of the chocolate shop, having gorged himself all night. So if law is not the way to live, what is? Well, Romans 7, 6 um, summarizes it very clearly. Uh, So back on page 1136, Romans 7, 6 says, We serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. In the new life of the Spirit. This is the solution that the Old Testament prophets look forward to. Ezekiel 36, 26, God said, I'll give you a new heart. I'll put my spirit within you. Or Revelation 31, 33, God says, I'll put my law within them and write it on their hearts. And he didn't mean by that that the Old Testament law would sort of be written out in full on our hearts. Uh, That's done away with now. But he meant that the eternal law of God, which stood behind the Old Testament law, God's character, what he loves, is now in us by his spirit, if we're followers of Jesus. And so the Spirit produces in us the love for God and the love for other people that the Old Testament law could never generate. Now this is what uh, Keller is referring to when he said, in that quote I gave you, that the gospel of grace, it doesn't try to bend a heart into new shape, into a new pattern. It melts it and it reforms it into a new shape. Born again by the Spirit, changed and remade from the inside out. Uh, Some of you know that our oldest child uh, was born with a serious heart defect. So the first few months of his life, he was tube-fed. He was getting weaker and weaker. He was going downhill rapidly. Only one thing was going to help him. Only one thing was going to save him. He needed a heart operation. And so he had a seven-hour heart operation. And uh, it fixed it. fixed his heart. And from that moment on, he was a new man, or new baby, at least. Um, And you could see the difference in him. As soon as he had the operation, his energy, his vitality, even the color in his face... He was a new baby. Now, the Bible is saying that we're all born with a spiritual heart defect. And until that is fixed, there is no hope for us. And there's only one person who can do the operation, and that is the Holy Spirit. So the law can't do the operation. All the law can do is to bring about some limited changes in behavior for a a limited time. The new life comes from the Spirit. I don't know if you have ever... Uh, done this, I haven't, but I imagine it must be quite fun. Maybe I'll do it one day. Um, have a makeover. <laughs> Don't say whether you think I need it, but you know, you know the idea. You get a better haircut, something really trendy, and you, uh, you get an updated outfit, and you get new shoes, and you get new glasses, and all the rest of it. And Then you turn up at church next week, you say, hey, it's a new me. It's a new me. Yeah, well, no, not really. It's just a new look. Yeah? It'd be the same me underneath. Now, this is the question. Um, is the new covenant is the new covenant just the old covenant with a bit of a makeover? 
So is it just sort of new branding, new design, but under the bonnet, you know, it's just basically the same machine, rescued for a life of law? This is a no. It is radically new. There's a different engine. There's inner change. And the Spirit not only gives us the initial uh, new birth, but he is also the source and the generator of our ongoing life and ongoing growth in godliness and ongoing fruitfulness for God. So the Spirit is the dynamic of change. And when you read through Galatians, that's exactly what Galatians goes on to describe when you get to chapter 5, um, page 1173. So Galatians 5.18 says, If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. 5.22, famously, the fruit of the Spirit, what he grows in us is love, joy, peace. 5.25, if we live by the Spirit, that is, if we have life through him, let us also walk by the Spirit. That is, day by day. So that's how we live for God now. Living by the Spirit. So we're relying on him. We're seeking, we're praying for a deeper work of the Spirit in our lives, in our hearts, changing from the inside out. Living out the desires of the Spirit in a life of love. Loving what God loves. So living by the Spirit and living for the King. So flick back to Romans uh, 7, verse 6. So Romans 7, 6 says, You have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another. It's the key phrase. So that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. The picture you've got in Romans 7, um, it pictures the law as a husband to whom Israel were married. And it's saying that that husband died. And because of that, they were now set free to be remarried, but this time to the Lord Jesus. And so the Christian life is basically a marriage to Jesus, uh, Jesus the King. We belong to him, we're to love him, we're to live for him. Now, if we're not careful, what we do is we end up as Christians living as if we're still married to the old spouse, to the law. So we end up just trying to keep rules, just trying to keep regulations, trying to obey, to be blessed, and fearing the consequences of disobedience. And when you start doing that, the Christian life becomes, let's face it, becomes little different to the Muslim who's mechanically saying set prayers five times a day and fasting all month. Or it becomes little different to the Orthodox Jew living in North London who is uh, building these Erev structures with wires between houses so that they can actually carry things outside on the Sabbath. Can you believe it? It's just crazy. And putting their lights on on timer switches so they can actually function without breaking the Sabbath command. Galatians 5 verse 1 says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. We've been set free. We've been set free from the slavery of law-based religion and law-based living for a new life in relationship with Jesus. And so the Christian life is now living for him. It's wanting to please him. And it's got all the security and the love and the acceptance of the ultimate marriage. Now, of course there's obedience. Of course there's changed living. But it's a very, very different motivation and it's a very different dynamic to being under Old Testament law. 
And you could run through a few examples and say, you know, from the New, Test- from the New Testament, why do we give money? Is it rules, is it regulations? Well, no. 2 Corinthians says it's because of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why do we live differently? Colossians 3 says because we have our hearts and minds set on things above where Christ is. It's Christ-centered living. So as Paul said in our key verse for 2016, uh, to me to live is Christ. And so we don't live our lives with our eyes fixed on a body of law. We, are, we live with our eyes fixed on the king who loves us so much that he laid down his life for us and he reigns over us and he dwells in us by his spirit. Knowing him, loving him, serving him, loving what he loves as revealed in his word. There's a journalist called A.J. Jacobs who wrote a book called A Year of Living Biblically. And basically this guy spent a whole year trying to live by Old Testament law. Uh, shaping his life for a whole year by Old Testament rules and regulations. Talk about missing the point completely. May we be those who increasingly enjoy the freedom and the joy and the power of a life set free from trying to get right with God through the law and a life of trying to live life by the law, instead right with God through faith in Christ and living by the Spirit and for the King. For freedom, Paul says, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Well, let's pause for a moment to reflect on what we've heard, and then uh, when the music starts, we're going to sing a song in which we declare that we know our only hope before God is the righteousness of Christ. Before the throne of God, we have one plea, and that is Christ Jesus who died for us. But let's just pause for a moment before we do that.